there are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it is obvious that she is not mad. For the moment then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. Welcome to the Chronicles of Podcast, where we are doing a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I'm Kel. And I'm Chase. And thank you so much for joining us today. Just a reminder that we are talking about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the second book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, but general spoiler warning for the series as a whole, and as a heads up that we will go on tangents into other forms of fiction, into history, uh, and into lots of other things that we enjoy. Uh, We'll do our best to give spoiler warnings along the way for anything that's particularly recent or egregious. Uh, You know, hopefully we'll, we'll give you a warning if not our bad. Uh, but today, we're discussing Chapter 5 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, back on this side of the door. We're back. On this side. Uh, until on, until on later. This, until we're back on that side, we're back on this side. Uh, yeah. I'll give us a summary. Yeah, love it. So, Edmund and Lucy step back into their game of hide-and-seek, but now they're looking to find their siblings instead of hiding like they're supposed to. They're all really bad at hide-and-seek. But once they all are back together, Lucy bursts out saying that there was in fact a magical land in the wardrobe, and Edmund had been there too to prove it. Edmund, who up to this point hadn't really decided whether to betray his sister and be evil or not, uh, made up his mind to be a bad person. And he gave a superior look, a nasty snicker, and then lied that he and Lucy had been playing and pretending that there was a world inside the wardrobe. Lucy runs out of the room, and Edmund began to remark how silly young kids are, even though he's only a year older than her. Peter just turns and scolds Edmund for being so cruel, and also implies that he thinks Lucy is going insane, but we'll just leave that for later. Uh, Peter points out that Edmund likes to pick on smaller kids in general, a red flag, and then Susan separates them, saying it won't help for them to start fighting now. They go and find Lucy crying, but she says she doesn't care what they think. They can do what they want, but she knows what she's experienced. And it was a tense evening, to say the least, and the older two siblings decide to go to the professor and let him know that Lucy is losing her mind. He listened to their story quite intently, and afterwards said something they weren't expecting. How do you know that your sister's story is not true? The professor says that Edmund's story is worth considering, but they should also consider which of the two siblings tends to be more truthful. They can see that Lucy is the honest one, and but what she's saying about Fawns and stuff just can't be real. And the professor says that he can't really say whether that stuff exists, but it's serious to say that someone who's usually truthful is a liar, and so he dismisses the claim that Lucy's gone mad, saying that it's obvious from talking to her that that isn't the case, and that there's really three possibilities, that she's either lying, she's mad, or she's telling the truth. She isn't known to be a liar, she clearly isn't mad, so we should assume that she's telling the truth. Peter points out that the wardrobe was empty when they looked in it, and if something is real, then it should be real all the time. Susan points out that no time had passed when Lucy claimed to be gone for hours, but the professor says that those are the very things that make her story seem all the more true, and... If there are doors to other worlds in his house, something he seems all too open to, then it would make sense that those worlds have a time of their own. Does it, though? Um, the professor scoffs that the children would think that other worlds could be would not be around any given corner, blaming the school system for not teaching them logic, and that the best course of action is that they mind their own business. So everyone stopped talking about it and went on with their lives, which was admittedly better for Lucy. Also, apparently tourists like to come see the house because it's some historical significance. And, you you know, you remember all the tourists going on sightseeing tours during the London air raids. Uh, So Miss McCready, the housekeeper, told the children to keep out of the way of these groups. One day, they hear a tour group coming. They run to get out of sight. and. 
The only place they could hide, because of some kind of magnetic pull, seems to be the wardrobe room. Reluctantly, they run into the wardrobe, holding the door closed but not shutting it, because of course, one should never close themselves into a wardrobe, and the chapter ends. Yeah, I'm, I'm real excited to get into this, because I have a lot of thoughts on this chapter. It's, it's a winding chapter, and wow. Just wow. Yeah. The theme of this chapter is truth and lies, and the truth, Chase, is I think there's a lot of untruth in this chapter. That is a, a lot of misinformation. Does Facebook need mi- to flag this chapter? <laughs> Twitter just removed this from from its site. <laughs> Twitter canceled C.S. Lewis. And I mean, there's wow, there's a thing that he said there. But we start off, Chase, and uh, you know. Because this game of hide-and-seek, uh, when Edmund and Lucy entered the wardrobe, if uh, we rewind a couple chapters ago, that is how our uh, our children got themselves back into Narnia for the second time, is a game of hide-and-seek. They come back, and because everyone knows uh, that in this point in time, no time passes, uh, you know, conveniently, um, that, uh, you know, the game of hide-and-seek is back on. So they now have to go and find Peter and Susan. Yeah. They're really bad at hide and seek because not only look Edmund and Lucy are not the ones looking for people in this round of the game. Yeah, they're hiding. But also, Susan takes a while to find them when they're looking for her too. Anyway, all that said, Susan, that said. Edmund, and Lucy, losers, bad at hiding. I would smoke Just them at this game. Be better at hide and seek. You have a giant mansion, but yeah, we digress. This isn't a hide-and-seek podcast, though it could be. Uh, I would love for this to be a hide-and-seek podcast. This is, this is a Narnia podcast, and Lucy is so pumped, Chase. She jumps out of the wardrobe, and she starts yelling, Peter, Susan, it's all true. Edmund's seen it, too. There's a new world. There is a country on the other side of the wardrobe. I'm not a liar. I'm not crazy. We are both in there. Uh, and, uh, you know, go on, Edmund. Confirm my story. Yeah, but now, Kel, we come to one of the nastiest things in this story, according Whoa. to C.S. Lewis. Man. Really? Is it nastier I... than selling your family out to frozen Nazis to uh, to lie? I mean, if you look in the grand scheme of things, maybe not. But like the the I think the malicious intent here, it's oh, got to yeah. be up there, and especially in the mind of a child, you know, like he... we're. He even puts on a nasty face. Like he goes full in. He goes full in. He makes sure that evil. It's yeah. bad. Like I it's a thing where it's like, yeah, obviously the grand scheme of things, like, you know, partnering with the fascist dictator is probably not the best thing you can do. But like when you're in the mind of a child, like, you know, this is a kid's story, they're reading this, like intentionally lying and betraying your sister like when you know something to be true like that's got to be like a devastating betrayal and like in the mind of a kid i can see this being like oh my gosh this is how how dare edmund you know yeah this is the thing that he'll wake up in the middle of the night four years from now thinking about and what is the thing he does chase uh he literally decides you know what i think i want to be evil now yeah that sounds good and he and so when 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 all Lucy's doing is like, hey, corroborate my story. You are now my witness. Uh, he goes on stand, puts his hand on the Bible, says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then goes, none of it's true. We were playing pretend I was just humoring her. It was you know all how young fun, children can be, <laughs> says the kid one year older. <laughs> yeah, than Lucy. Which I thought Edmund was at least like two, maybe even three years older than Lucy. No, he's a year older. Like yeah. if she's seven, he's eight. Which both of those are still child, child children. Yeah. This is uh, all this to say. This is a really tough look for Edmund, right? Like we're gonna dunk on Edmund a lot, and like you know, I think mo- like we won't really. Edmund's not gonna have a lot of redemptive qualities until later on. But man, this is a this is a bad look. Intentionally mean. He's not just snarky at this point. Like, this is intentionally cruel. Yeah. He he literally changes his face to, like, be more arrogant. And then, like, goes out of his way to laugh before lying. 
He, yeah. Like, at least the White Witch believes in her cause, right? Like, sure. even, even if that causes world domination and fascism, at least she believes in what she's doing. Like, that is more respectable in some ways than what Edmund is doing here. Hey, Edmund is just, he's a, he's a Narnian youth, you know? He's a, he's a White Witch <laughs> no. youth. Oh, uh, no. It's, he has an armband. <laughs> he, like, so, you know, whatever. Uh, it's, it's, it's fine. I've seen Sound of Music. It's okay. Uh, but, um, no, it's, it's, it's definitely one of those things, like, I'm curious whether or not, like, obviously he's, you know, a snarky, sarcastic kid before, and he's, like, known for being a little rude. But also, like, I'm curious, like, how much of his vindictiveness and how much of his cruelty is influenced by his influence from the queen from the white witch like has she has her presence somehow just like maligned him it's almost like being exposed to the devil changes you it might uh you know it it could uh but all this to say he you know he he just trashes lucy in this moment and lucy is just devastated and rushes out of the room and just is so, so hurt uh, by this. And here's the thing. I, I will not defend Edmund in this moment. He deserves to be roasted on here. Indefensible. Indefensible. But I also need to take a moment to talk about Peter because this seems super harsh. Like I'm glad you're saying this, I saw it in your notes. And I'm like, oh, thank God I'm not the only one who's got issues with Peter. Yeah, because like he, Peter goes, look here, shut up. You've been perfectly beastly to Lou ever since she started this nonsense about the wardrobe. And now you go playing games with her about it and setting her off again. I believe you did it simply out of spite. Now, all this to be said, he is correct. Edmund did do this out of spite. He is being rude. And Edmund is lying. Again, not defending Edmund. But Peter does not know that Edmund is lying. Peter also does not know that Edmund is doing anything vindictive, right? Uh, He is, this is a really harsh overstep from an older brother and like kind of acting in like a ton of like holier than thou, which is definitely one of Peter's fallbacks. It's like, have you ever had an Enneagram 8 mad at you? Like that's how Mm. it feels. And I'm not. I mean, I may or may not be married to one. So <laughs> <laughs> we're we're off the three trade onto the eight trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I I don't know. I just get which it's weird to say that you get vibes from someone whose words on a page, but like I sure. get really arrogant vibes from Peter throughout. Absolutely. Like, it because I know he's supposed to be like of the siblings the more like model sibling he's supposed to be the good one the leader the the front of the line the oldest like he's not written with a lot of negative qualities because not he's any, supposed to be a I'm, foil to Edmund sure. yeah but it's yeah it just kind of he comes across as like you said holier than thou and that's not the best look either. Like yeah. no one wants to be around the guy who they think thinks they're better than them. Right. Like it's a thing where it's like, again, not defending Edmund, but I can understand why Edmund harbors bitterness against his older brother in particular. Like if he was neutral or whatever against Susan, I could understand that if he feels, you know, guilty or shame uh, regarding Lucy, I can understand that. But like, I also like, I can get why he would be like, you know what? I'm not really a huge fan of Peter. And like, I don't know if Peter was intended to be written as holier than thou, or if C.S. Lewis intended him to be like, hey, this is this is the guy that you should be rooting for. Like you said, he's the model character. He's the leader. He's the responsible one. But throughout this book, Peter's kind of arrogant. And he doesn't really, like he always acts with a like, I know that I am correct. Uh, and I think that kind of bites him in the butt in the next book. Uh, but yeah, like, I'll be interested to see how that plays out in this book because mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's like intentional or if it's just this is how C.S. Lewis thinks men should be. Like, yeah. it, it could be either one. I I kind of right. hope it's intentional. I hope it's like a hey, this is 
this is toxic masculinity. This is like the weird like a presumption that because you're the older male that you're in charge and need to tell everyone else to get in line. Sure. Like it's uh yeah, I'll be I'll be curious to see how that plays out. Having not yeah. read this book in a couple of years, I I have no clue. Yeah. It's uh it's I don't know. I'm 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 interested to see how this plays out, but I mean, I think it's definitely worth considering like maybe he is trying to put on a front given their like you know uh situation like he's trying to be overly parental and like paternal uh and overly responsible and i can hope that that's a flaw you know yeah and i'll say like a lot of times guys who are like that tend to be putting up a front to mask their own fears or like sure like hidden like whether it be like just shame or fear or just like lack of control, like that tends to be where stuff like that comes from. Like the unwillingness to engage with people in a like kind and gentle and understanding way usually comes from a place of, no, I've just, I've got to get this under control because I am afraid that this is about to be taken away or this person right. is about to be hurt and I, I can't do anything about it. it, it Absolutely. Stuff like that. Yeah. I'm with you. Uh, I think this, I mean, we've been around enough students like who are young and who are immature and brash like Edmund to know, like for me, so this is a personal youth ministry rule I have. And so for any students listening to this, you know, take this uh, with a grain of salt. There's definitely no way that you're this student. Uh, but I have a, I have a more, it's not a rule per se, but it's kind of like a piece of philosophy, um, that there are some students, there are some people who just need to be punched in the face one time for sure. And, and like, 100%. they just need to learn that like, Hey, you can't just, and Edmund is definitely one of those kids and he'll get his punch in the face moments later. And so like, I'm not too, uh, you know. I know that this is coming and Edmund becomes a really great character after that. Oh, for sure. All that and to say. One of yeah. the big bummers about youth ministry is that you can't be the one to do it. Right. And if, a <laughs> if student... you do that, you will go to jail. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a, that's a for sure red flag. Uh, yeah. And so it's definitely not in my job description to punch students, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, all that to say, knowing that Edmund is one of these kids, the way to handle this situation from an authoritative aspect, from an older brother aspect like Peter, is not to be harsh necessarily, but it's to gently correct, especially when a kid is Edmund's age. He's, it's not like he's like a teenager. It's not like he's an older, uh, like young adult. Like He's a kid. Like yeah. it, the, the best like way of action isn't necessarily being super harsh. It's like, hey, dude, like let's talk about the way that you're approaching things. Absolutely. And, and in general – Usually the best course of action in a situation where there's a disagreement between people, where there's conflict, where there's stuff like that, is not to come in and wag your finger and tell people, this is how it should be. It's to ask questions. Okay? Right. What happened? What are you thinking about? What do you think is going on here? And then comparing notes because usually like that kind of confusion and conflict comes from a misconnect on communication. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, one thing that I do want to also say about Peter, isn't it a little extreme to assume that Lucy is forming a mental disorder because of this? Yeah, we're going to get into this, uh, especially when we start talking about uh, Professor Diggory. Yeah, uh, which I've I've got other thoughts on the professor, but just like even just wanting to call out the BS of like that being the first assumption – there, there's a culture of mental health shaming embedded in the Pevensey family. Like, yeah, you're not wrong. Uh, I mean, it, it, it really is true. She's and either going queer in the head, or she's turning into a most frightful liar, according yeah, to Peter. Because Both you really, know this one thing that yeah. that obviously indicates a uh, a mental health disorder, but also, look. For our listeners, mental health is a serious thing that everyone should take seriously. Absolutely. Peter, not just the person you're having trouble listening to. Like maybe yes. like what if your sister is just going through something and you should ask follow-up questions rather than writing her off as crazy? I don't know. Maybe Chase 
say that there, for example, is a giant world war happening and you've been forced to evacuate your home and you're seeking refuge in this new unknown place and your mind as a child, you start playing pretend. For me, this is the most reasonable solution of what's happening. Yeah. Obviously, that's a solution that should be taken as a, okay, we need to let her have this. Yeah. (laughs) Not a, oh, maybe she's going crazy and we should ship her off somewhere. Yeah. It's, but we'll get into all of the, the nuances of this argument. But before we get into Professor Digger, I just have one thing. Like Lucy, uh, before she, you know, goes into her, uh, her fit of rage and sadness and uh, she goes, I don't care what you think and I don't care what you say. I know what is true. You go, Lucy. Uh, yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe yeah. like do- maybe don't defend the fawn and be like, I know that I saw this. Fawn. Like maybe leave the fawn out of this. We have They're our everywhere. We have our own thoughts about the fawn. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, whatever. Sure. All this to say, Lucy knows what she's seen and felt and experienced, and she is going to stick by her guns. Hashtag free Lucy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's let's stop calling women crazy when we don't want to listen to them. Also, hashtag free Britney. Um, you've clearly seen my wife's Instagram bio then. So. I, I haven't. I I am have not gotten around to the Netflix documentary yet. There you go. It's I good. You should been, watch it. I have been following the story of Britney Spears's uh, situation for a couple years now. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, I uh, it's wild. I have too many opinions about it, so I'm excited for that. Wild stuff. And also, just heartbroken for this seemingly really kind person who is in a bad situation. Yeah. But you yeah, know, let's I'll... stop gaslighting women to thinking they're crazy when we just don't want to listen to them. 100%. Also, like maybe just sibling situation here. Consider the actual psychological damage you are doing when you gaslight her saying someone's a liar when you don't have all the facts. That that could do more damage than just going along with it. 100%. Whatever. Yeah. Just going to put that out there for Peter and Susan. Just slide it there. Leave it on the table. Do what you will with it. But Chase, this brings us to our uh, the chunk of the chapter that we're probably going to have our most thoughts on because this uh, is the this is the biggest section of the chapter. So Peter and Susan, this is a responsible thing to do. They're wondering what's going on with Susan, and they decide to bring it up to Professor Diggory. Right? Sure. He's the he is the quote unquote responsible adult in this situation, yeah, and so they're and, like, "Hey," and he is more thoughtful than them. And so I, I do think it's wild that Peter and Susan are like, you know. If we tell him that Lucy's lost it, he'll probably ship her off somewhere. Which that, two options for where to ship her are back to London, where which is currently being bombed, or to an insane asylum. Both of them not good options. Wild, wild stuff by Peter it, and Susan. It's here. crazy. It's crazy. But, they're like, yes, this one thing that Lucy can't get over must mean that. But at least, at least, they're going to Diggory about this. Yeah. Alex. Which would uh, which would appear to seem like the rational thing to do. We'll discuss yeah. how rational this is. Yeah, but is it rational though? So they tell this story to Diggory. Now at the front end, want to give Diggory some props. Great listener. Yeah, very like, intent. He he uses some great active listening techniques. He does not interrupt the entirety of the story. He listens the entire time, and then before responding, he waits a few moments so that he can collect his thoughts and provide a good response. Listeners, that's how you listen well. If you are in a situation where you need to hear someone out, follow Diggory's lead. Now, the rest of Diggory's responses may questionable. be questionable at best. So, Chase, you want to break down uh, what are some of the things uh, that that Diggory uh, respond or like the arguments he makes, and then we'll kind of take those point by point. Yeah, so I, I've broken down his... The, the professor's defense into kind of four categories. Uh, he really wants Peter and Susan to consider their source cred- credibility, the logical possibilities of the situation, quantum fluctuation for some reason, and then Ooh. finally, the point where we land, mind your own business. Yes. Uh, so let's so, start. Yeah, let's just take those reliable. piece by piece. So – 
who's typically more truthful? Fox News or the New York Times? I mean, no, I mean, sorry. Oh, hold on, wait, wait. Ed, Ed, yeah, Edmund you... or Lucy? Edmund or Lucy? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so, yeah, the basic idea here is that a source, in this case your sibling, has more or less credibility based on their history of spreading truth or lies. A source that consistently provides reliable facts and proven honesty is more credible. A source that bends narratives, misrepresents facts, or flat-out lies to get their way has less credibility. This is the basics of discerning truth. Sure. This is a this is a decent argument by Diggory. Yeah, seemingly like, so. I have questions like, about it. This is but... it's it's at least a good baseline where it's like, hey, who is generally more reliable? Lucy does have Stockholm syndrome, so that is something worth considering. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> but like uh all in all, that doesn't necessarily make you a liar. It just you know, may yeah. point to other things. It, it uh, makes me question your judgment. I think sure. wisdom is something that we need to incorporate into the, the truth test. Yes. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think this is, look, this is a very reasonable way to vet your sources when you're looking at things like who to follow for news reporting, historical documentation, stuff like that. Sure. The, the reason the boy who cried wolf was abandoned by the townspeople and left to die is because he lost his credibility. Like, that's that's what Diggory is getting at here. You stop listening to someone you no longer trust for facts. But is this a fair way to know who is telling the truth in a specific dispute between two siblings? And between two child siblings. Yeah. I don't really think so. Not necessarily. Like... Yes, you can presume that Lucy, being more generally trustworthy, might be more likely to tell the truth than Edmund, but not necessarily that she's telling the truth in this exact instance. Right. This also dismisses that, look, I, I think this is actually a good rule of thumb for people out there. The wider and wilder the claims, there's there's an L in one of those, but I don't know that I can pronounce it. Uh, why, the wider, wilder the claims of a source, the more evidence that you need to be provided with to maintain credibility. Sure. So something that Lucy does not have here is evidence to support her wild claims. And this I, is... Yeah. <laughs> this, this is a huge deal in this first part of the argument, right? So, because Diggory starts off, as soon as they finish the story, his first question, the first thing he says is, how do you know that your sister's story is not true? And Susan and Peter are like, wait, wait, like record scratch immediately. Yeah. Like, they're like, no, it's not true what? because it's very obviously not true. And like, they were like, well, Edmund said they were only pretending and he goes into the source reliability. And then they immediately are like, well, we, we also tried the, the, the place out. <laughs> yeah. They, they did more than they even really needed to. Like they did go and look in the wardrobe I don't know. Look, if you tell me the sky is falling, I need you to have some evidence. Yeah. And it's... also, like, maybe, yeah. I, I, I see what the professor's getting at. I don't know that this should lead us to believe in child kidnapping funds quite yet. Sure. I'll leave it there. But this leads into the second uh, argument that the yes. professor makes, which are the logical, logical possibilities. possibilities. Uh, and this we brought up in our opening quote. Uh, but. Uh, the professor logically uh, declares there are only three possibilities here, which is true. Yeah. But, uh, I but mean, it's, we'll get to it. If you want to go in an unnuanced, very straight line, black and white way, there are three possibilities. Sure. And he says, your sister's either telling lies, she's a liar, she's a crazy person, she's mad, or she's telling the truth. Now, this is a this is stemming from a C.S. Lewis argument in Mere yeah. Christianity. It's a classic about about the divinity of Jesus, about his godhood, right? Where he is either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord, because he can't just be a good teacher. Uh, yeah. He can't just be a good prophet. Uh, he can't just be a good person because of the claims he makes. Because he yeah. does claim to be son of God slash God. Right. Yeah. A person can't logically say that Jesus was a good teacher, but dismiss the actual claims he made. If if he's spreading misinformation or unethical like 
truth claims, then you can't say, oh, but he's a good guy. Like, no, right. he's either a liar or he's telling the truth or he believes something that's insane, in which case you should dismiss his other teaching as well. Correct. It's, yeah. It, now. It's funny that he applies that in this children's book to yeah, a little girl. To a child. Li- liar, lunatic, Lucy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's kind of wild, honestly, because like he he's really quick to go because of our first point of the source credibility to go well lucy generally doesn't lie so but like he, he all of his his like defenses of this he goes you know she doesn't tell lies she's a child one yeah i know plenty so, of children who are pretty truthful children everybody lie. has lied everybody tells so, lies so everybody maybe don't apply this like also like even if, and I think this is where the nuance of the situation comes in past just these three categories, two people can believe opposite things and both legitimately believe them to be true without being crazy because they're focusing on different things. And they have their own perspective on it. Vastly different conclusions based on the assumptions that you make, the the moral preferences and uh, and patterns that you follow. And so going those directions, you will logic your way into those in a completely reasonable way. You, you will end up at your conclusion in a completely reasonable way without being crazy or a liar necessarily. Right. And, and I think that it is a very unnuanced way of coming to this. Sure. Helpful but- apologetic tool, not necessarily a... Not a great way of determining you. for normal human people, especially yeah. normal human absolute people. truth. Hard, hard to come to here, right? But so she says she doesn't tell lies. Well, maybe like he's taking quite a bit of a stretch here, but not as big of a stretch as when he said she. It is obvious that she's not mad. You just have to talk to her, right? Well, Chase, one, the term "mad" is already something that yeah. you and I like. We've talked about mental health already. That's already something that you probably shouldn't be using here because like yeah. it assumes Which, that mental health is a like it's a it's a negative, right? It's a flaw where it's like, yeah, it's maybe something that you need to work through, but it doesn't make you worse than other people. So already like you're coming in with a bias against madness. But given the facts of everything, like to say that she is not experiencing something that is not true. There is no reason that Susan or Peter or Diggory, if he did not have the history and experience that he already had, there's no way that they should make this assumption that this is not a wild and crazy claim because Lucy is claiming to have found a new universe inside of a wardrobe. They checked the wardrobe and it was not there. Like, just because, like, you can say, like, oh, yeah, like, I've talked to her. She can have coherent conversation. That doesn't mean that someone doesn't believe something that's not true. Yeah, someone with schizophrenia can have a coherent con- conversation. Like, right. To say one thing is true, therefore the other thing must be false is is a false equivalency. A yeah. logical error. <laughs> uh, but apparently they don't teach that kind of logic in the schools. Diggory gets real upset about the lack of logic, quote unquote, uh, taught by the schools today, and he is practicing some real faulty logic. Yeah, yeah, he uh, he really doesn't see the fallacies in his own logic. Yeah, it's, which it's, speaking of fallacies in logic, the next category, whew, yeah, quantum before, fluctuation is what I've titled it. Man, um, it's this is wild. So essentially. The professor says that the details about time not passing in our world and the way it passes in Narnia is a reason in and of itself to believe Lucy. He literally says, quote, that is the very thing that makes her story so likely to be true. Um, what? Man. <laughs> this is the least sensible thing that he tells these kids. What about time working differently in another world makes that more likely to exist than not? So here's the thing with all of his arguments, we have to, as readers, as listeners, as people who are 
digesting and marinating on this argument, we have to remember the biases that Diggory is coming into this argument with. He is well aware that Narnia exists because he's been there. And he knows that these other worlds exist. And he knows that time does not work the same way in between these two universes. He does not communicate any of his own experiences. That would have been a much more vital argument because that is his testimony. You cannot argue a person's testimony. You cannot believe it, but you can't argue against it. Like yeah. He's going very Dumbledore twinkle in the eye, like knows but won't say it kind of thing. Yeah. This is this is maddening for me, uh, trying to put myself in Susan and Peter's shoes because it's like, why would they have any of these assumptions about all of these worlds and how they would work? One, they're not quantum physics majors; uh, they're children. Two, we don't even quantum physics and like theories of relativity. They're theories. No one knows what potential other universes and worlds would yeah. look like or how they would function. For sure. And look, also not a quantum physicist, um, but like just considering what time is, time is a relative understanding of the way that events progress that we have assigned a system of measurement to. Mm -hmm. So why would it make more sense for time to pause in one world when you're in another that that isn't how relativity works, even in my vastly limited understanding of it, which like my understanding next to zero, non-existent. But even I can look at that and say, that doesn't make sense for time to pause in one world just because you're operating another. That's like you paused a video game and went to the kitchen to make a snack. Then you came back and unpaused the video game. That's not how movement and breath and action and the planet's rotation work. Sure. Like, this is, he, he acts like this is some obvious thing that must be true by its own merits. And yeah. it's actually really dumb. You're a dumb professor Diggory. How right. are you a professor? It's what are you a professor of? Quantum physics, maybe. <laughs> but, I guess so. <laughs> but he, uh, it's, it's crazy stuff here. But the one part he brings up in this uh, part of his argument, uh, the, the one thing that I really, that I'm like, okay, I can kind of get on board with is that he says, like in this, like there would have been no time at all, uh, you know, or like it makes, that's what makes the theory so true. The one part I can get on board with is the part that has nothing to do with quantum theory, right? Yeah. It's the part that's like, Lucy, if like you said that no time had passed at all, how would she have been able to concoct this whole story and like create this whole world and all these adventures she's went on for hours and hours in the span of a second? Uh, and wouldn't it have made more sense if she had hidden longer to make her story more plausible? Now, that part of the argument, I'm like, okay, I can kind of get on board with, but he is still taking real implicit bias into yeah. this argument. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the fact that Lucy passionately sticks to her guns about the time piece of it leads you to believe that she experienced something differently than how her siblings experienced it. Like the right. peculiarity of that claim, the fact that she doesn't change any details when others contest them and try to provide evidence to the contrary suggests that she actually believes it to be true rather than just be making up a story. And it's actually another like potential apologetic is like the claim, like one apologetic in Christian theology is the disciples died for their claims of Jesus's resurrection. If that wasn't true, why would you literally die for a lie? Like you have to consider that they actually believed it to be true. If they were willing to go to those links to support their claim. And in the same case here of less extreme, like Lucy is not dying. We, we hope fingers crossed the book is not over, but, Ooh. uh, yeah, she is willing to go to the mat for a seeming ridiculous claim that has counter evidence. And so you have to consider, at a very minimum, Lucy legitimately believes this to be true. 
Mm-hmm. And so, For sure. regardless of anything else, like that, the truth that you can hold to is Lucy, who is a credible source who we believe to be in her wits, actually does think this is true. Absolutely. And th- here's the thing in this in this argument that he's making, he talks about his home. He talks about how he lives in a strange home that even he doesn't know everything about. Does, we, doesn't he, though? If you listened to our podcast episodes on the first book in this series, this is not the home that he grew up in. This is a different home, a new home. This is not the place with the tree. This is only the wardrobe exists here. What is this place? Like, wh- yeah. how, what, do you, what do you mean there are strange things that happen? And but later also, on... The, yeah. Doesn't he move here like basically like the next year after Magician's Nephew? Like, doesn't his random yeah, uncle I mean, that he doesn't care about die? Like, and leave pretty him much with a boatload of money. At the end of that book. Maybe his like, uncle I, left I, him with a professorship. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's how. That's inheritable. Yeah, it's the family business. Uh, and so, but it's like, why would you like? He, there, I, all of these things are so much more easily explained and understood if he just tells the kids that he has been in Narnia, that he knows that Narnia and other universes exist. Without this knowledge, it everything is bonkers. Knowing how quick that Peter and Susan are to jump to putting people in an asylum, maybe it's best that he doesn't say this out loud quite yet. Man, good point. That's a great point. Uh, but... They'll I write mean, home to their father and be like, this is dude you left us with, though. Dad, what are you thinking? And dad's going to be like, bro, I'm in a war. <laughs> uh, bro. Uh, that's how I imagine them speaking. But yeah. Classic 50s vernacular. Classic 50s vernacular. All of this leads to his final argument, Chase. And can you break down uh, the nuances of this one for us real quick? Yes, yes, Absolutely. The, the final argument, the conclusion of all this talk about truth and life. Yes, yes. Mind your own business. I, I can't say it the way I want to say it because this is a family in, podcast. Insert, insert word between just, own I, and I picture, blank. I picture Kevin Hart delivering this line. I'll, I'll leave uh-huh. it here. Uh, sure. Does this answer the question? No. No. Is it the responsible and adult response to the sibling quarrels? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that this is the most reasonable thing that Diggory says to them. Leave your sister alone. You're making it worse by trying to ship her off to an asylum. Just let things play out. If it's true, it, it'll reveal itself. If it's false, it isn't consequential enough to make a fit over. Mind your own effing business, Peter and Susan. Get out my face. Bye. Conversation it's, over. It's wild stuff that, like, I agree with this. This is this is a good word. But this is coming from the same dude who, like, barged in and made his way into Narnia and never, like, minded his own business. Yeah, I mean, this is the same guy that rang the bell that created the White Witch. Yeah, like, come on now. Now saying, get out my face, mind your business. (laughs) It's like, I agree with your logic, but you need to at least explain, like, I have made mistakes before. And it's best to just leave things as they are sometimes. Yeah. Like, and also, in the case that Lucy was lying and was embarrassed that she got caught in her lie, and even though she was a generally honest person, like, just kind of dug in and didn't want, like, this is a good, reasonable response to say, hey, just let it go. Offer her the graceful way out. Just like, let yeah. it be. And you this know what is happens? the right response. And you know what happens afterwards, Chase? Things get better for a little bit. Yeah. Says that, you know, Peter makes sure that Edmund stops making fun of Lucy. Everyone's like having a little bit more fun. Uh, it's, it's, it's all as well. And that, so, so ends the argument and the, you know, apologetics discussion yeah. with uh, Professor Diggory. Yeah. Book and over. thus, nope, not quite. Uh, oh, not wait. so fast. Are there people uh, visiting? Do we have space, visitors? Space. This 
drove me nuts when I read this. I, I immediately highlighted this. It was like, what? So Yeah, if for, you're not for, following along, if you if you did not read this chapter along with us, we're talking about the fact that at this point in the book, we suddenly learn that apparently Professor Diggory's house is some cultural site. And sure. people show up wanting to see it and tour it because it's on maps or whatever. Sounds reasonable. So they have parties of tourists just randomly visiting the house sure. on a regular basis. Sure. But Chase, what's happening in this time frame? Oh, you mean the Blitzkrieg? The Blitzkrieg. London and England in whole as is being bombed in World yeah. War II. Yeah, and I think saying England as a whole is a good point. They do bomb other towns than just London. Like this is a time of intense warfare and fear and hunkering down. Like the reason that these children are living at this house in the countryside is because this house is less likely to be bombed than their house. This and so is, you're telling me that people are just casually going on sightseeing tours. Hey, everyone needs escapism. I guess this is nuts, Chase. This is like, this drove me wild. Like it's like CS Lewis forgot while he was writing this, that he that he was setting this in the middle of World War II, and he's like, I need to get a, I need to like something to catalyze this, the the kids so they could get into the wardrobe and get into yeah. Narnia. Which, like, I know the house is famous and people want to take tours of it, which yeah. I already have issues with. Of all the plot devices to force people, because also, like, look, I know that small town, like. This family's home museum, like I sure. know that exists. I've driven by them and yeah. never once said I need to pull over and see what this is sure. about. For all we know, this house is Downton Abbey. Yeah, maybe, maybe Diggory's uncle was a Windsor. Like I don't know. Who knows? But are they really having that regular, that large groups that these children in a large mansion? have to get out of the way and like be out of sight, out of mind. Like yeah. what is, what are we trying to say? This is like, right. They're so, not in a tourist area. So to say large groups are coming through. So is crazy. Here's, here's my deal. Setting aside everything about the Blitzkrieg currently happening. And that this is a ridiculous time for anyone to be doing anything touristy in sure. England, setting all that aside. Let's just put ourselves in the position that there are tourists. They are at the house. Mrs. McCready gets a bad rap because all she is telling the kids to do is like, like one, she doesn't like kids. That's not a crime. Yeah. Like it's fair. Like at this point, I don't know how much I like kids. So it's, it's fine. She is the, like the caretaker of a house that for its most of its existence is just a crazy old man. And that's it. No kids, like she's not around it. She like she she didn't pick a life where there were kids, right? So it's not yeah. a crime for her to not like children. That's okay. But the thing that she tells the kids is like, hey, there are tourists, even though this is a ridiculous thing that could happen. There are tourists. Sure. And they are wanting to look around this house. I am asking that you stay out of sight. That seems reasonable. Yeah, like honestly, not a big ask. Like, and here's the deal. If you are a tourist coming into a house where you know people live, why is it unreasonable that the kids would be, I don't know, in their rooms? Yeah, and you're probably not showing people like the kids' bedrooms. The, y- yeah, tour. You would just you They're would maybe at the walk past of armor it. that apparently Peter and Edmund are trying to think about taking apart and putting on themselves. Which, if you've ever seen a suit of armor, I mean, if you've ever seen Scooby Doo, yeah, you've great idea. To do it. Great but idea. It's it's a thing where it's like, like the the kids. I don't think they. Why would they get in trouble for being where they're supposed to be, which is in their bedrooms? You're probably going to be in more trouble for sneaking into rooms that might be on the tour. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And also, like at this point, it might as well just be that C.S. Lewis wrote a paragraph that said. This is a plot device to get these children back into Narnia. I wasn't sure how to phrase it, 
but they had to get in the wardrobe, and now they're in Narnia. He more because or less it says literally that. just says it was like some magic in the house had come to life and was chasing them into Narnia. Right. Sure. Whatever. Like, well, well, like <laughs> this is for all of the creativity and the wonder that he puts in these books. This is lazy. This, this is, is not... really, really lazy. This it's is just like, oh no, this is. Gonna... I need them to be in Narnia. I'm not willing to put in the work to come up with a reason that they would be in this room that they've been in like 10 times at this point. Yeah. Uh, but, oh bother, they get themselves into the wardrobe room, and then they hear footsteps coming at them, so they're like, oh bother. Oh let's, no. <laughs> let's get into the wardrobe. But thank God, Chase, because Peter, as we all know, such a smart person. He they get in the wardrobe, and as he's closing the door, Chase, he does it. He does the thing that everyone knows. That everyone should yeah. know. Say it with us, audience. You never you shut yourself, yourself in up. a wardrobe. <laughs> this is five out of five. Every single chapter, we get this. Like, I'm honestly, it's a bit. It's a joke. It's not like he doesn't say it because he actually means it anymore. He's saying it because he thinks it'd be funny to keep saying it. Right. Now, it's at this point that like in in projecting the rest of the book, they're about to spend, I don't know, like eight, nine chapters probably in Narnia, 10 chapters. I don't know. Uh, they're probably not going to mention the wardrobe, but I really want them oh, to. Man, I, I really hope that they just casually mention like – in a couple of chapters to the beavers, like we're yeah, not there I'm, yet. I, I hope they're Mr. like beaver. So how did you get into Narnia? Oh, uh, well, there's this wardrobe, which you know we didn't close the door all the way because everyone knows you shouldn't close the door, close yourself into a wardrobe. But we See, got into this wardrobe. I want Mr. Beaver to be the one who says it, where it's like, well, everyone knows you don't shut yourself in a, in a yeah, wardrobe. Yeah. Well, we came <laughs> through a wardrobe in our want, in our friend's like uncle's house. I want Magrim, the, the captain of the Wolf Gestapo, to go, well, everyone knows you don't shut yourself in a wardrobe. You got into a wardrobe? You know, it's not smart to shut yourself in a wardrobe. I want so many characters to say I, this line. I want the queen, as she's casually pointing them back to the wardrobe, to be like, and hey, make sure not to shut the door behind you. That's dangerous, you know. It's dangerous. The queen's like, God forbid. You shut yourself in a wardrobe. We'll turn you to stone. Oh my gosh. But I won't, sh- I won't lock you in a wardrobe. But I love that that's how he ends this chapter, Chase. Because what more fitting way than for him to remind us of the dangers of wardrobes. What a meme. Uh, well, well Cal, Chase, do you have anything else you want to hit on before going further up and further in? I think it's time to head further up and further in. Uh, I'll start us off. We have, uh, Chase and I have uh, liked to, we, we've coined this uh, further up and further in the uh, intro to theological studies at your seminary, uh, because I'm going to be talking a little bit about argumentation and apologetics. Chase is going to be talking about epistemology, uh, real fun stuff, but basically argumentation and apologetics. We see this a lot uh, with the bulk of this chapter with Professor Diggory, uh, and more or less, you can define apologetics as defending what you believe. Uh, that's a, you know, defending what you believe to be true uh, and finding, you know, reasoning, logical reasoning for the things you believe. It's not just blind faith. It is having a reason and rationale behind the things you believe. We see different variances of defending your truth and defending what you believe in this chapter. Lucy says, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you think. I know what's true. That's more just like, hey, blind faith. I don't need a reason. Great for Lucy. Not necessarily what C.S. Lewis would argue for, but that's a, you know, that's her defense. Peter and Susan, they are much more uh, sensory, right? They're defending what we have seen, what we have experienced, what our experiences in our past history would declare us to be true. We have tested the wardrobe. We have, uh, you know, heard from Edmund and and Lucy, who seem to have differing opinions, but we tested it ourselves and it didn't work. And in the earth as a whole, what we've noticed is that there are no fawns, there are no things like this. Apparently Atlantis exists, but that's a thing for a different, uh, that's for a previous uh, podcast. Um, but they are operating on their senses. Now, D- 
Diggory is practicing what he considers logic. Now, C.S. Lewis is a much better uh, theologian and uh, and apologist, I think, than Diggory. And so this, I don't think, gives him as much credit as he, you know, deserves um, after writing a book that is as well written as Mere Christianity and other apologetic uh, books, where basically he provides a step-by-step reasoning and rationale for the belief in Christ, right? He starts with the reason that you would need to believe in God as just an entity and then believe, like take step-by-steps of why you would need to believe that God sent his son down to earth and to die for our sins and that that son is Jesus, right? He provides a reasoning and a rational argument. And C.S. Lewis would encourage his readers, his listeners, whatever uh, form they were taking to not only think critically and seek out truth, but that they would also be able to defend truth and to, to defend what is correct. First uh, Peter 3.15 uh, more or less is going to say, be prepared in any given moment to give a reason for the things that you believe in gentleness and in love, but able to give a reason for the things that you believe, specifically that Jesus rose, or died and rose from the grave. Um, he would encourage people to not just believe something, but to know why you believe it and to be able to communicate why you believe it. That's a big deal. Uh, and so uh, this, I think this chapter really points to this emphasis on how do you not only seek truth, but how do you defend it? Cool, cool. My further up and further in, I've titled Epistemology 101. Uh, yeah, so this chapter is essentially a basic logical epistemology lesson. Um, epistemology is the study of knowing. Uh, how do you know that you know what you know? That's what mm. epistemology deals with. Um I'm not going to break down the actual basics of epistemology because that would be too much for this time. Uh, but uh, this this chapter really does deal with how we come to the understanding and acceptance of truth and facts and reality. The professor's line of questioning has to do with logic and how to know if you can trust the source or not. On a larger scale, though, epistemology and the philosophical question of truth and fiction have a really rich place in fantasy literature. Fantasy as a literary genre relies on the existence of things that many, by definition, question the truthfulness of. Think of Han Solo in the first Star Wars movie. How could something like the Force really exist? Think of the Dursleys and Harry Potter desperately trying to deny Harry's place in the Wizarding World, or the Ministry of Magic desperately trying to deny Voldemort's return. Like, the fact that Narnia could exist without our knowledge is key to the magic of the stories. It's what we keep talking about as the cornerstone of what makes these things so fun to engage with. A, a key question of classical epistemology is, can I actually trust my senses to tell me what exists? Can I trust the evidence at hand to provide me with real truth? And often, the answer, philosophically speaking, is no. Our eyes and ears and memories are not actually very reliable narrators, and that right there is what opens the door to the fantasy genre to step in and say, okay, well, this is what you're not seeing. Like, what if magic was there and we just didn't realize it? Chase, we've presented our opening arguments. We've examined the evidence. We've made claims. And now, listeners, it is time for you to mind our business. And the way that you can do that is by going to wherever you found this podcast, be that Spotify, Apple uh, Podcasts, or wherever else, uh, and rating us five stars, leave us a review, follow us on Instagram at the chron- at, at the Chronicles of Podcasts, uh, fo- engage with us on, on our social media, uh, and make sure that you mind not only your business, but the business of this podcast. Uh, it's the right thing to do true and shout out to our plethora of greek listeners apparently that exists <laughs> apparently we are crushing it in greece in the greek apple podcast ratings Killing. there are there are dozens of us <laughs> dozens uh, but yeah but we'll see you guys next time peace out
I mean, that one time in college, whenever UT had its ice days. Yeah, that was the best. Like, I was in shorts that day. Like, it was one of those days was a partial ice day. Yeah, one of those days, someone dropped an ice cube in front of the tower, and so they canceled the entire city. They they decide we can't handle this. This is more weather than we've ever it was, seen. It was literally like when we woke up that day, it was like 40 degrees, 45 degrees, no ice anywhere. Like a pretty nice day. 